0: Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Strength and Speed owner, Evan Preparis. I'm fine solo for this one, but I do have another guest on the line. First quick word from our sponsors, though. This episode is brought to you by Hammer Nutrition. If you aren't using Hammer Nutrition, I'm not sure what you're doing for your endurance training. They simply have the best products on the market. and I'm sure we're going to talk about it a lot more in this episode. because I do, My guest is also a Hammer Nutrition-sponsored athlete. So my favorite products are Perpetuum. It's a fat-carb protein blend. I use it for all my ultra-endurance fueling. And then my other favorite product, I'd say, is REMCAP. So it's a sleep aid. helps you sleep deep at night, recover faster. And then they have the standard line of stuff like gels, uh, caffeinated gels, which are great for the, the really long events. And then they also have things like HEED, which is essentially a maltodextrin, so a carb-electrolyte blend that you put into water and you can drink that on the course or in your aid station or et cetera. So really great line of products. And then not beyond that, they essentially have a full line of health products. So you can go and get your daily vitamins there, fish oil, all sorts of good stuff there. So check them out, hammernutrition.com. And if you use code 240887, you get 15% off your first order from them. Uh, if you're not sure what to buy, check out the long course fueling kit. Which is essentially a mix of products and flavors, allows you to try a little bit of everything. And then from there, you can kind of place a bigger order with the stuff you like. All right, let's get into the episode. I have, like I said, another Hammer Nutrition sponsored athlete, Rob Steger. Did I pronounce your name right? Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm notorious for bringing people on the podcast and not asking how to pronounce their last name. So I'm like, I feel like I'm, I do pretty good. But uh, anyway. Quick intro about Rob, and then we'll start talking to him. So Rob's an ultra runner himself. Um, Like I said, sponsored by Hammer Nutrition. Also like me, he hosts his own podcast called Training for Ultra, which is around probably, what do you got, like 90 episodes now?
1: Coming up there, yeah.
0: Yeah. And then on top of that, he's also an author, so released his first book. Was it earlier this year or last year?
1: Uh, Earlier this year. Just a few months ago, three months ago or so, yeah.
0: Yeah, we'll get into that. He has a it's available on both hard copy and digital. And then on top of that, has been competing in ultras since two thousand fifteen. Done a mix of stuff, you know, a couple couple hundreds here and there. Done about twenty ultras total. And I was also finished the Moab two forty, which is quite possibly the longest ultra, one of the longest ultras that's like officially sanctioned race. After that, you get into stuff like FKTs, uh, fastest known times, and kind of record setting record setting runs. So Rob, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I liked all your hammer nutrition recommendations. I mean, I, I don't know if you would be using them if you weren't a sponsored athlete, but I would. Um, and you hit on one that no one talks about, the Perpetuum. Uh, I use that in every ultra. I just wanted to throw it out there. It's, it's a great product.
0: Absolutely. I think Perpetuum is the hands down the best endurance fueling product, period. And I would use them regardless. Um, have you read Have you read the book Endure? I have. Yes. Yeah. So in that book, they're specifically talking about like, you know, fueling obviously for endurance stuff, and they talk about essentially using every pathway. So you know, fat, carb, protein, and you, it, you know, like your body won't. It's not just burning fat or just burning carbs. Like it's it's burning everything in different ratios. So if you take it all in, your body will will burn everything to its maximum capacity. And I think that's what Perpetuum does versus some of these other ones that are just like, here is sugar water. And you're like, you know <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. But
1: why I, am I having, why am I having a gut bomb at uh mile 25?
0: <laughs> right. And I try to explain it but people are like, Oh yeah, I use, and they name another product, which I'm not going to name. Um, and I'm, they're like, it's like the same thing. I'm like, it's not the same thing guys. Like, legitimately, I have not found another product that has the same kind of uh, nutritional profile as Perpetuum. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, so let's get into enough about higher nutrition, which I'm sure I'll come up again later. But uh, kind of let's get into you and how you got into ultra running, and then we'll talk about some crossover points with OCR. So give me a quick kind of how you fell into the world of ultra distance running.
1: I mean, it was a strange... Occurrence, I guess. I mean, my, my dad had a big health scare. You know, I got a phone call late one night after he'd had heart surgery or heart stents put in. Um, and he was very fortunate that he didn't, um, you know, have a massive heart attack. But, he, you know, he's like, this is genetic. I um, just wanted to tell you. So it was a very eye opening experience. I'd been just stressed out, working nonstop. Pretty much eighty-hour weeks, uh, no activity. Literally, if I went for a walk, my fingers would be tingling. Like I was that, yeah. I was, I was on a pretty bad path, and my dad's health scare kind of gave me the kick that I needed in the butt to like, okay, shape up your diet is where I started. Um, Yeah, it was pretty. I was pretty stressed out, um, not only at work, but then trying to figure out how to solve this, how to, you know, get off the same path that my dad was on. Um, I truly think I would have had a massive heart attack at 35 or 40. Um, I, I've been, I'm not 40 yet, so maybe, I will. <laughs> um, but I, I was watching, um, I was literally ready to grasp onto anything that came at me and. I randomly turned on Netflix and saw Joe Cross, who did this juicing cleanse thing, um, which was pretty extreme, but at that point, I had really no options, so I did the the green juice recipe for like 30 or 40 days. I, mean, I initially went into it for like three days, and I was like, okay, I'll take it day by day, but then like many things in my life. I like making it a challenge for myself and I just kept going and I lost. So I weighed 200 pounds, which I'm 5'6 on a good day, 5'7. I'm pretty short. Um, was pretty heavy. And I lost 50 pounds. And all of a sudden I found myself with all this energy. I didn't know what to do with myself. In the back of my head, I had read Ultra Marathon Man by Dean Carnassus. And so I knew about ultra running. I thought like maybe I could run a 50 K and call myself an ultra runner and be happy the rest of my life. But yeah, a coworker asked me how long are you going to still juice? Cause everyone was asking me what I was doing. Cause I just shed all this weight. You know, I had all this energy. My mood was much better. Yeah. I was a different person essentially after losing all that weight. And I, I told the guy, I was like, you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll transition into running for whatever reason I hadn't even run before. (laughs) Um, Like I I literally was not a runner. Like growing up, I, I golfed, I played hockey. I don't know why I said that. Um, So apparently I became a runner all of a sudden and uh, yeah, it was was a pretty humbling start. I took, um, but I mean like everything I do, I'm either all in or, or nothing at all. And I went for it. I just started running basically every day. You know, I, it broke me. I took second to last place in my very first race. It was a local half marathon. And the uh, the person that came in last place was a recovering heart attack. Uh, I think he had heart surgery. And it was, it was his first half marathon. So, like, yeah, it was a very humbling start to running um, I hurt myself during that race, and this is end of I think this is November of fifteen. I had run for like two months, decided to do a half marathon, busted my knee, took all of December off, and just tried to regroup and yeah, from there, I mean i I literally hit the trails. That was my big change. I started running a local trail in Columbus, Ohio, and all of a sudden. You know, I I got one 30K race under my belt and ran a marathon in April. And then I just leveraged that into a a local 50K trail race in May. And then June, I did a 50 miler on trails. And then I went for a 100 miler in, I think it was uh, July or August.
0: Wow, that's a quick turn from not running at all to 100.
1: Yeah, I don't advise that um, path, but that's what I did. So, um. yeah, that,
0: that's impressive. And so it's funny you said, you know, you came in second to last because you've reinforced a point I brought up on my podcast before when I said, um, I've said the only people who know who comes in last are the guy who comes in last and the guy who comes in second to last. Like, no one else. No one else knows who came in last because no one else cares, right? Like, you don't look at results. You're like, oh, you know, let's see who came in last. Like, I've never done that ever um, unless I feel like I'm in last place.
1: (laughs) I mean, I tried to describe it in the book. I, I agree. I turned around, like, I'm maybe 200 yards from the finish line, and I see last place, like, coming at me. And I just tear up, and my knee is so messed up. And I'm just like... I'm probably crying and I just in pain if anything just cuz I had I found running I found distance running I had done 16 17 milers before that half marathon and running a quick half marathon before work like it like just for a training run no problem and it was putting my life in balance and then to have that all taken away like yeah it it was pretty disturbing. Like all December, I read a book on ultra running every day in December. So probably 25 or 30 books. Oh, wow. And I, I, I became a ultra runner mentally way before physically being able to do it.
0: So that's, that's awesome. I, I feel like you can – obviously, I write books, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of people reading books. But I feel like you can take a lifetime of people's lessons and experience in a book, and then consume that information. And you know, you reading twenty five ultra books, like you'll essentially start to see huge trends among like training and race preparation and stuff like that. So, what what are yours? What are, yeah, nutrition. So, what are your some of your some of your favorite ultra running books? Just out of curiosity.
1: I mean, uh, Born to Run, obviously. Ultra Marathon Man is my absolute favorite. Um, and then, man, there's just so many of them yeah. after that. I mean,
0: those are those are the two that I would say most, you know, like those are the two that I think pulled the most people into ultra running. Um, Born to Run was the one of the few times in my life where I read a book and I was like, I put it down. I was like, I need to run an ultra marathon like right now. Like I need to. Otherwise, like I don't have this feeling very often because I'd, I'd done them before I'd read that book. Um, but I was like, I need to sign up for one like in the next month <laughs> because I am motivated and it's going to, you know, I, I gotta go out there and crush it. So I signed up for a 40 trail race, which didn't actually did not go well. I pulled my quad around mile 10, and then uh, proceeded to run on it for the next 25 miles until it hurt so much that I was limping and basically limped the last 10 miles into the finish. So, but
1: yikes! My <laughs> my takeaway from that book, as weird as this is, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of information. Was changing my foot strike. So centering my foot strike more under my body okay. um, because I kept rolling my ankles on the trails because I was basically heel striking. And so, I don't know why of all the great information in that book, it really helped me focus on where my foot is coming down and making sure it's underneath my body and making sure my cadence is, you know, roughly 180 um, foot strikes per, what is it, per minute or something like that per mile um so it it really helped me on that front so then my knee issues started going away because I wasn't heel striking which was like a whole chain reaction so as weird as that is that was like the one like major takeaway for me personally um but yeah yeah I love ultra running books I love all running books there can't be enough of them (laughs) I agree I used to go to Barnes and Nobles and I was just like
0: I'd either buy a ultra, buy a running book or I'd sit there in the Starbucks and like read through it over several days and then pick up a pick up a new one. Like at one point I had read every essentially running book that I felt was of any of any value in Barnes and Noble's like my local Barnes and Noble's. So um, strongly agree with that. All right, so you do a 100-miler based pretty pretty early in your running career and then I DNF'd Yeah. Did you? Okay. Yeah. So, what what was the kind of the lesson learned from from that
1: experience? Um, you know, I had talked to some pretty experienced ultra runners before that particular race. That was towards Cleveland, Ohio, and you know, the first twenty miles were on road, and they said wear wear road shoes. So I wore road shoes, and I I was going to pick up my crew at mile fifty. And I clipped a giant route, probably mile. I literally was looking down at my watch, excited, knowing like I actually have potential here to, to do what I came out to do. Like, you know, run a hundred miles, clipped a giant root, and it didn't take off my big toenail, but it just smashed it up really, really bad to the point where it was rubbing on the top of the toe box. Um, so I, I ran into mile 50 and like people were commenting like, Hey, you look pretty good. Like you're actually running mile 50. But, um, when I hit the downhills, it was so painful that I just, I was, if I walked, I was limping and I just pulled the plug at mile 50 knowing like, okay, like lesson learned on, on wearing trail shoes on the trails with toe guards and rock plates seems pretty basic, but I had to mm-hmm. learn that the hard way. And I could also see beyond 50 miles at that point. And I knew I was capable of, of doing it. So it, you know, it was hard to force myself to be patient, but, you know, I healed up, did a, another 50K in Northern Michigan, had a really create more of a light, like a life experience there and seeing what, what's outside of Ohio and how amazing those trails were and how the trail community was. And then I finished a 50 miler at the North face in Wisconsin. And so, you know, I was layering on all these 50 Ks and 50 milers. So yeah, it was, it it worked out, you know, I, I knew I had to be patient. um, But I really was not focused on speed at all. Like what was driving me, what, got me up early mornings to go for a run or, you know, my passion was distance. So I always wanted to see how far I could run. And my goal basically from is mid-September of 15 when I very, you know, very first run I went on was 12 minute miles or as many miles as I want. That's like my ultimate goal in running. So.
0: Interesting. So, after your 100 DNF, you know, when did you complete your first 100? And can kind I, of how far after that uh, from your kind of initial start and running was that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It was um, <clears throat> early June of 17. So 2016 was the first year I had accomplished a Ultra. So it was May of 16, Thunder Bunny 50K. And first 50 miler was june of 16 and then one year from that first 50 miler was my first 100 miler kettle kettle moraine 100 miler um in wisconsin you know it was not the most ideal conditions there's like a giant rainstorm ton of one-off situations but uh was able to get that done it really boosted my confidence a lot
0: Awesome. And what's your big goal for twenty nineteen? You have coming up.
1: Uh, triple crown of two hundreds. So, Bigfoot two hundred, which is in August, and then the Tahoe two hundred in September, and the Moab two hundred and forty in October.
0: And if for any of our listeners not tracking, those are two hundred mile running foot races. So, or two hundred and forty in in the in the last one's case.
1: 've done yeah, they're all longer than 200 which is kind of weird too <laughs> round down, like I guess 206, 206 and then 240 something 242 probably yeah I guess this doesn't sound it
0: just doesn't sound as good if you know a nice round number <laughs> sounds sounds better I guess so let's go from your so you, you finish 100 and what makes you like oh well I've got hundred so let's might as well might as well do uh, 240 next that makes sense so kind of tell us about that jump.
1: Yeah. 200 milers were on the radar just because, you know, I, I work full time yeah, I'm doing all these extra ultra running activities. Um, yeah, I have two kids. Um, life's really busy. So 200 milers to me was like, okay, like you're not going to go die trying to FKT. Like there's a spot tracker GPS device that each runner has on them. So like, yeah, they're dangerous in, in some regards, but they're also probably as safe as it gets when you go beyond know, 150 milers or 150 miles anywhere. Um, but yeah, I, I started gaining confidence. I would say I, I had a lull in 17 where I had some knee issues, came back from that knee issue, had a really great Havelina 100 in October of 17. I like think it was... Right around, I mean, goal pace was try to crack 24 hours, but again, you know, speed doesn't, it didn't appeal to me. It was more like, how do you run through the desert for a hundred miles? Mm-hmm. Um, and that race got up above a hundred degrees at certain points and everyone was trashed all around me. And I just managed to keep going, which is kind of, that's my background in running. I'm just dumb enough to keep running. And Going into eighteen, I uh, yeah started very ambitiously with you know ultra running has the ultimate like Super Bowl of ultra running is the Western States one hundred, and it's a huge lottery system to get into it, and so golden ticket races are kind of the you know the gold standard of of uh, races that are. Deemed, you know, good enough to be a race to get automatic qualifiers into Western states, and then you can also um, run a qualifier. And so I started eighteen with just a few days into eighteen doing the Bandera hundred K and easily making the qualifying time. So I had a ticket into the lottery of Western states, not a golden ticket. I'm not an elite, um, but then I thought let's just go for it. So black Canyon hundred K the next month. Um, again, it's a gold golden ticket race. You know, it's seen as, you know, a, a good race and finish that one and just kept rolling with roughly doing a hundred K type distance, uh, all the way through, you know, doing one of the hardest races in Colorado called never summer hundred K with, um, notorious North Diamond Ascent, which is just a ridiculous climb. And it's, I think it's right around 11,000 feet of altitude. So, um, yeah, and I forgot to mention, a month before that, I tried to do the Silver King in Leadville, which is the Silver Rush Bike Race 50 on Saturday. And then the next day, you have to do the Silver King Run 50 miler. That, that sounds starts,
0: like a really cool
1: event. I mean, if you really want to test yourself, I mean, it's it's just amazing. Um, it starts at 10,200 feet. It goes up to – there's four big climbs throughout the race that go up to 12,000 feet. So when you're racing at 12,000 feet, just like oh. – it's, it's a totally different experience. And you have to nail down nutrition and hydration at altitude because your body just functions – Totally differently. Um, so finishing that and actually having, like, I did not know how that run was going to go because my body was beat up from all the uh, kind of the rocky trails in Leadville. But it gave me a lot of confidence going into Never Summer, finishing Never Summer, um, you know, respectable time given the weather and conditions there, sub 20 hours, and then go. Flying out to Europe, and UTMB seen within the ultra running world as like kind of the Olympics on an annual basis for ultra runners, and CCC is the hundred k kind of sister race to the hundred and six mile UTMB race. And I uh, actually had a really great race, so it gave me a ton of confidence. And flying back, I'm like, how do I top this experience? You know, like I just went out to the most competitive. 100 it was actually um 65 mile race and finished top 500 out of 2500 people which again i'm middle of the pack so i had a great race i'm like how do i top this and you know i talked to candace burt the race director of the moab 240 and she's like your spot's here if you want it so yeah i think it was like maybe 30 days later it was a pretty quick turnaround a lot of a lot of people I talk to are like, "How did you recover from ccc and go into moab two forty and I'm still i don't know if my body figured out how to recover quicker throughout the year, but yeah moab two forty man, I mean it's it takes a lot even just to sign up for that race. It's a totally different experience um it's you're going out for an adventure, you know it's I had done the math or I I have an Excel sheet that I use for all my ultras and it broke when I put in 240 miles. (laughs) I didn't didn't know how to like figure out my time at all. It like, it literally broke. Um, And I, I had to rebuild (laughs) an Excel model just to handle it. And I was looking at 86 hours as kind of my best case scenario. And then I was like, kind of concerned that if this was a bad race how long it could take so you have four and a half days I think is the cutoff or it might be a little bit more than four and a half but days yeah so what was your strategy going in um it was I I was I was trying to run at a hundred mile pace because that's all I knew and I liked the unknown. I didn't know how I was going to feel. I knew I was completely drained at the, at the end at like mile 90. Well at mile hundred of both my hundreds, I was pretty much drained and just destroyed. But both those races I had pushed into the finish line and in the back of my head, I'm like, you know, I still have some energy left. Like maybe if I had taken it easier for the, five or 10 miles into the finish, like maybe I could have gone 120, 130, but yeah, it was totally going into the unknown and part of me loved that. And part of me was, you know, scared as hell going into the unknown, but I assembled like an all-star crew that I knew if things got ugly, like at least I wouldn't die out there, you know, or, or very low risk on that That's front. Good, good plan. <laughs> I mean, and sadly, I mean, once you go into this extreme realm beyond probably a hundred and I'd say beyond 150 miles is pretty extreme for one run. And, uh, I think most people think longer than a marathon is pretty extreme, but yeah. I mean, yeah, we're talking extreme of the extremes. Right. Yeah.
0: It's, we're getting real.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Really far down the uh, the rabbit hole here.
1: I mean, and I, I have a YouTube video, it's called running four days, which is kind of a pawn on on four being actually the number four. Um, but yeah, I, I dropped my nutrition bag, which had a thousand, probably a thousand, two thousand calories of gels and just all kinds of like snacks and stuff at mile 20. And so I found myself bonking just totally out of energy for 30 miles. Um, Most people bonk for 30 minutes, maybe an hour or two. Um, But yeah, 30 miles of bonking and just being destroyed was like the lowest level of, it just put me in the lowest of lows. I I can't really explain it. I mean, I try in my book, Um, but to be able to, I mean, I describe it as coming back from the dead essentially around mile 75 coming in the aid station, eating as much food as possible, taking a 45 minute nap and like coming out of it. And then being able to just rebuild myself from the bottom up and running, like really, really running and having my best mile of the race at right around 210 running at a 835 pace and wow. smiling and enjoying mile 210 was just, yeah, there were so many highs, so many lows, but pain's not linear. Pain comes in cycles. So I know your listener, I mean, you guys are going through a heck of a lot carrying crazy stuff around and like really putting your body through a lot, but Pain, you'd think starts low, ends high, but as you really push your limits, uh, you figure out that your body actually cycles through that kind of thing. So, as long as you're handling hydration, nutrition, and when it really gets extreme sleep, uh, yeah, it, it comes through in cycles and yeah, I learned a lot about myself at Moab 240 and I probably not only ran, but I truly think mile 210 was the best mile I've ever run my whole life. (laughs) It, um, It sounds crazy. And I also think I ran one mile, I think it was right around mile, I don't know, 170, 160 in just pure bliss. Like it was one mile of running like I'd never experienced before. So I've, I've run in flow before all kinds of different flows, which is, you don't even feel anything like it's just it's not a runner's high it's uh just like a next level of of uh living in the present and i really found out a lot about myself during that 1 mile and yeah it was it was a crazy experience i mean i hallucinated out of my mind for a few hours like i was hallucinating snakes all over the trails um but they all look the same. So, and there were a lot of pine cones that had been smashed down and they had transformed into looking like small, like coiled snakes. And then we'd have to climb over logs that transformed into like snakes that were so ridiculously big. I was like, okay, that's like clearly not a snake. (laughs) This is getting just out of control. Are these daytime hallucinations or nighttime?
0: These are all daytime and I've done some pretty extreme sleep deprivation things and I've only hallucinated during the day once. Um, okay. And at night I feel like, so most of my hallucinations are from uh, military stuff. And at night when you're under night vision goggles, the green and black, you know, the, the shapes aren't super clear. So a lot of times you're, you know, it's like uh, raw shot ink blot tests. Like totally as you start looking through your, your mind will just start filling in what it, what it knows. So I mean I've I've seen all sorts of stuff crazy stuff at night but I've only I got only got one daytime hallucination it was like uh I was pulling security at uh again it was at ranger school after um, basically I was in charge so when you're in charge you have this like rush of adrenaline because you're 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 being graded so everything is kind of on you so you're you're very hyperactive for like 12 hours and then you're like all right you're not in charge anymore and you're like your body crashes and, uh, it was right after one of my graded, uh, sessions and I was sitting on patrol and I saw like what I would describe as like a hairless space monkey, like jumping around <laughs> in front of me. And, and I did the That's same scary. thing. you Like I saw that and I was like, what the, and I was like, no, this has got to be fake. That, you know, there's no way something would come that close. Like an animal would come that close to us, uh, on security and, I snapped out. Yeah, you,
1: you can ration, rationalize through it. I mean, the next level of hallucination that I'm fortunate that I didn't experience was you don't even have rationalization of the fact that you're hallucinating. You think it's real. Yeah, it's a whole different level. I mean, I think over four days, I slept just under, I think it was four hours and like 50 minutes or something. And I was so out of it. Like, you'll if you watch the YouTube movie, like... We'll repost it to the uh,
0: Strength of Speed Facebook page.
1: It's like mile 190. I'm I'm telling my pacer and crew, the guy that's videoing, like, yeah, we've probably slept like four or five hours. But really, I was so out of it, like I couldn't even count correctly. So I was more like two hours or two and a half hours, (laughs) which is pretty bad. But going um, four days straight, basically. I mean, I literally, I think the longest, and and these were – episodes where i get into my crew car we had like a sleep like a camping bag set up i would close my eyes and then open them and then i was like i don't even know if i slept or not like <laughs> and i also i had times where i literally just lay down on the trail like my my pacer had to take a leak and i was like i just i felt very primal looking for like pine needles and it, it's it's crazy. I mean, it's. I pushed my limits. I went to Moab 240 to see what I was capable of doing. I wanted to push my limits. And I knew beyond 100 miles was the 100-mile the mark before that was my limit. And so, I didn't know what was beyond that. And I I think as long as you have kind of a safety net set up for this type of experience. Like, I had... Pacers for 175 miles. I had a team of four guys that all in their own right, you know, were doing their own ultra marathon, 50 mile ultra marathons, essentially. And, uh, I mean, have that safety net, but don't be scared to test your limits. And after you break through these walls, all of a sudden you're like, I mean, your military background, I I read um, Goggins' book and I'm like, man, you know, Going through, where do I sign up to try out for the SEALs? That sounds like a great week. <laughs> like, can I sign up for a fun hell week? Like, I, I'm willing to test myself on that front. Like, so.
0: So it's funny, you, it's funny you mentioned that. The obstacle course racing world, you can't go through a full hell week, but you can go through things that are like mm, 60 hours long. You know, we have things like uh, Death Race. We have GORUCK Selection. We have, uh, yeah. So most of them are shorter. But I will say, like, you know, having gone through some uh, military training and some pretty hard courses, one of the things that makes those courses super hard is their length, right? Like, I mean, some of them are weeks long, so it's not like, all right, I'll just power through it for this weekend and I'll be good. It's like, nah, this is like, this is three weeks or uh, this is two months and if I fail, I'll have to do a section of that over again. So theoretically, I could be here for six months.
1: I mean, all I know is 96 hours. So, or 95 out or 95 hours and like 56 minutes. So like almost exactly four days straight. Um, and that's just nonstop. And what's cool. I I mean, I'll
0: caveat also, I'll also caveat the military training with this, right? It's not, it's not nonstop, you know, you're, you're essentially working or training for periods and then you're resting or, you know, even when you're supposed to be awake but you're pulling security. I'm essentially laying down in the middle of the woods. So, um,
1: I mean, and it's just weird because you you get through something like Moab 240 and honestly, it would be awesome to see David Goggins do a a Moab 240 or something extreme. He He's done a lot of hundreds. Um, and honestly, I think I'm shocked that the military doesn't just have like a recruitment center at the finish line. Uh, <laughs> like special forces is just right there. Like, Hey, uh, yeah, you, you made it through two forties. So, uh, we'll consider you. Um, <laughs> but seriously though, it, like it, it took me probably a week or two of just like recovery. And I was walking the next day, like not great, but, um, because you're not totally, I mean, you're almost never lactic through that whole court. You're always, uh, aerobic as much as possible. Um, but yeah, two weeks after, I'm like, how do you top this? Like, there's, I, I don't know what to do. Um, you know, motivation for me a lot of times is find a personal goal that's like super motivating to you. Like, it has to be, it's not a competition. Like, just because I'm signed up for the Triple Crown doesn't make me better or worse than anyone else. I mean it, it literally is the only thing out there within like the defined racing world that motivates me to actually wake up and train and work towards some hard goal that I think's borderline impossible so I know a lot of people are probably like just doing Bigfoot 200 in August. I think it has like 45,000 feet of of uh, gain and it's a mountainous 200 miler. It's like 206 miles or something to that effect. And it circumnavigates Mount Rainier, I believe, Mm -hmm. like just goes all the way around it. Um, It's, it's just, yeah. Yeah. It's what's motivating me. So I'm just a big proponent in find something that motivates you, whether it's, you know, pushing a certain time on a 5k or, you know, a PR at, at whatever race, you know, is doing it for you or it doesn't even have to be an actual race. I mean, it could be just, you know, my wife hates actual races. She loves running and getting out just for three or four miles, but she can't stand races. I mean, if you can't stand races, just find a goal. Um, but then don't overly focus on it. It's weird because I mean, I'm doing the triple crown, And all I'm thinking about is just pace yourself great for mile one of Bigfoot 200 because I can't do anything more than that. And if I overly focus on the future, you know, I might get all hung up on it. And and truly, it's not going to help me at all if I overly obsess on it. It's living in the present for mile one living in the present for mile two and going from there and after 650 miles of the triple crown, I'll be done. But you can't, it's kind of cliche, but you know, you can't eat the whole elephant or, you know, whatever the saying is, yeah. you know, in one bite. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I, I, I use that saying
0: all the time. I love it.
1: Cause you really can't achieve um, these, these big goals and ultra running without just focusing in on the present. And that's helped me a lot. Like I found meditating through running and it's helped me deal with stress. So like working full time, all the family stuff that's going on, like there's just a lot going on behind the scenes beyond just training. And I found flow in running and then I kept figuring out that flow was more of like a meditation that I've figured out. And I'm a very visual thinker, which does not help on standardized tests, by the way. Um, But visual thinkers can also, if you train your brain properly, you can turn the slide deck off and all of a sudden live in the present, which takes things to like a whole different level. Um, I know meditation is kind of like this weird there's kind of like a misconception on it, but I think, um, yeah, it's definitely helped me just day to day. Like, you know, a lot of little anxieties and stresses disappear because I just can turn off being hung up on past decisions. You know, did I do that right? Could I have done it better? Like, and then I'm not, you know, stressing on future things and I'm living the present and, it allows me to do a lot more. So, I get it. I
0: I find that I'm going to, you know, in the ultra running or ultra endurance sports world, you know, you'll get into situations where things, like you feel terrible, right? Like the lowest of the lows. Um, and I find that because I've experienced that, you know, when things go wrong at work or, you know, um, something in my personal life is not perfect, I find I'm more resilient or it's like, well, at least I'm not like, you know, in a ton of pain and I'm dehydrated and walking through the, you know, course X or, you know, and same thing goes with uh, a lot of my uh, military experience, right? Like things will go wrong and it'll be like, well, you know, no one tried to kill me today. So that's a positive.
1: I'll I'll put that in the bank. can't, Can't imagine that one. But yeah, if I have like five projects and like all of a sudden my boss throws two more at me and it's like, oh my gosh, like I literally go into my ultra mind frame of, well, let's focus on mile 1. Let's focus on project 1 right now or at least this part of it and I just start knocking out miles like and yeah, I I totally can relate and it makes instead of just being average cuz you're so stressed out about all these things that you have, you're able to let that all evaporate and focus in on what the task is at hand and I end up actually performing much better because i'm not overly stressed about having so much stuff to do and i mean it's one of the most common questions i get even my dad's like i don't understand how you do all this stuff like how do you have time and i think truly just living in the present and zeroing in on the goal at hand and and just enjoying the conversation that you're in right now um allows me not to get stressed about how much I actually do. So I end up doing a lot more than probably seen as normal. Gotcha. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, it, I think it makes
0: total sense. And I think there was a lot of lessons learned that, you know, obstacle course racers can take away from that uh, conversation and that talk you just had that they can apply to their own
1: life and their own sport and lessons.
0: Now, totally. I, wa- I mean,
1: if the, previous, if the previous obstacle went like crap, like don't, think about the previous obstacle think about the obstacle at hand and that will let you know you'll get over it and uh move forward and have a lot better race than being all sour cuz you had one bad you know one yeah. bad area
0: now with um the 200 mile races i mean they are so long like in my mind it it's almost like a different sport it's like trekking versus pure ultra running? Because are the guys winning, like, running the whole 200? Is anyone running the whole 200?
1: The the female, the females that are winning a lot of times, uh, Courtney Dewalters, someone you should definitely talk to at some point. Um, Yeah, they are mixing it up. Like, so it's choose what's most efficient, and it gets amplified. Like, ultra running, even a 50K or a 50-miler, you know, some of the shorter if I should dare say that Uh, ultra is like, it's all about efficiency. And so if there is a steep incline, it's just more efficient to hike. And it depends on the grade. And like, it also depends on a lot of variables like the heat. So like you'll be strategic during those races. Well, it gets amplified times 10 during a 200. So you have to be very strategic. That's what I really like about it. And it is, it's kind of like the master's level course in ultra running. Like it takes like literally every single ultra I had run previous all, I don't know, 20 ultras that I had done prior to Moab. I was taking lessons learned from each of them and applying them during the race real time. Um, And little things like the heat of the day, it was like, I think I was 30 hours in. And I hit it right around a hundred miles and it got really hot. It was maybe 90 degrees and we're in the desert without any kind of shade. And so I, I knew I was tired and hungry. So I, I utilize, you know, I was just rational about it. Like, let's take the time to sleep. So I took a nap for 20 or 25 minutes and made sure to eat three, three sandwiches or some ridiculous amount of food. But, um, Just have to be smart and efficient and yeah, as the distance gets longer, if you're if you have a weakness, it gets uh it's very apparent. So
0: good stuff. I I kind of we talked a little bit about this in the Hammer Nutrition private athletes group. Um but so recently or recently as in the end of twenty eighteen, early twenty nineteen so world's toughest Mudder, the biggest 24 hour obstacle course race went from lots of prize money down to no prize money for any category. and I have a series of articles prepared but that I'm still kind of fine-tuning but I just want to do a quick comparison. So tell me about the ultra running world and prize money you know like what are there big races with prize money or is it are there there's none? like
1: maybe one or two? Uh, yeah yeah it'd be it'd be much easier just to talk about uh, run rabbit run which is kind of a unique animal um, in Steamboat Springs it's, it's a very difficult course but I think it's the one race and I don't know why it has such a prize first maybe because it's in August big race month obviously for ultra running and just to attract talent it somehow has figured out how to give away like pretty sizable checks. I want to say $10,000 roughly. Um, But to also win Run Rabbit Run, you have to devote six months of training towards it. So yeah, if you're in ultra running, it's almost impossible to make that a profession. So a lot of guys will try to do coaching mixed in with, and again, these are like the best of the best. Um, coaching mixed in with maybe having a shoe deal you know having one or two sponsors on that front and just squeaking by like I truly it's there's probably 10 people that can actually be um, legit ultra runners as a profession it just there's no money in it because that's not why people run ultras (laughs) and uh yeah. Why do you think it is that there's not a
0: demand for money from the top athletes in the sport? Obviously we're um, hypothesizing here, but, um, just kind of, I mean, it's
1: a good question. Like you win the Super Bowl vault running Western States and maybe you'll get a North face contract or something like that. So, I mean, again, you have to be just basically born, literally born to run to win Western States. It's, Super elites. And same with UTMB. The exact it's actually probably harder to win UTMB, also. Uh no prize money at all. And yeah, why why are they not demanding money? Probably because there is no money to actually give away. <laughs> um I mean they could maybe start charging people a thousand dollars to run some of these local races, I I just think it's expensive to put on races like this. Yep. I mean, and I don't think the race directors are making a ton of money. A lot of guys are just doing this as like volunteer work. Like run rabbit run does give away a lot of money to charity too. Um, But yeah, they, I don't know. It's a great question. It's worth exploring more. And there's been a lot of talk, like how do we compensate these guys? Like, it just right now there's no real solution. Like you can't crowdsource. It's just hard. Um,
0: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, one of the things I usually write articles about is I compare obstacle course racing to other sports. And, you know, I, I posted that question in the hammer nutrition group, you know, you know, what's your sport and kind of what's the prize money for your ultra distance sport. And pretty much across the board, like obstacle course racing is like the only one that has ever had prize money. Really. I mean, like you said, Run Rabbit Run has a pretty big prize burst, but like, you know, Western States, Leadville, I couldn't find any information for the 200 mile, the Triple Crown of 200 milers on prize money. You know, someone posted. There's no money. Yeah. Someone posted uh, a 340 mile canoe race or uh, paddling race that's in Missouri. That's uh, the longest, essentially continuous paddling race. No prize money in that. Um, you know, we have a couple of ultra cyclists in there and, you know, no prize money there. So I started to do – I have essentially have a series of articles coming out, which I haven't figured out exactly how I'm going to wrap it all up. But, you know, I mean, ultra sports just doesn't have a lot of prize money. And I think one of the problems is it covers too big of an area, right? Like, if you're covering 100 miles of ground, like, you need – a lot of times you need permits, and then you might need porta-potties, and you might need aid stations. Yep. You know, like
1: – and like you said, the, the race directors aren't making a whole lot of money. So There's only – maybe five race directors that are legit making a living off it and uh they're the best at what they do. And I don't think they're driving Ferraris, that's for yeah. sure. Um but yeah, I think part of it's also ultra running, like, we think it's such a big sport or such a big deal. And like when you zoom out, it's like twenty thousand people out of hundred, you know, billion, there's billions of people on the planet and there's probably only legit 50,000 people in the entire world that are ultra runners. And so if you're Nike and you have 1% of your budget to allocate, are you going to, um, spend money on developing trail shoes or are you going to expand a new, I don't know, a mass F, you know, a mass sport, uh, you know, marketing. Um, I don't know a place like China where there's just this huge consumer base. That yeah, your your return on on that investment is definitely going going to be in China, not trail running. Um, so, so it's it's a difficult situation for trail running.
0: So I did an internship actually, where I worked at Under Armour for three weeks, and one of the things I was, I mean one of the things I was to say I was disappointed with was how very, and it, it's obvious when you think about it, how they're very just like, you know, it's a fashion thing. It's like, here's our new shirt, it's it, it available in these colors and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, like occasionally they try to sell you, you know, they market something with having like better quote unquote technology. But at this, at the same time, it's like, you know, people just want different colors or whatever is the new style for that season. So it's, you know, they are a sports apparel company, but at the same time, it's it's really a fashion company um, that sells stuff for sport. Um, because again, that, like you said, that's the mass market of people. You know, it's people buying that shirt and going to the gym and lifting weights, or going for a three mile run and coming back. You know, stuff like I
1: that. mean, I, I think um, I think trail running needs to be in the Olympics. I can't believe it's not. Maybe maybe that is part of the issue, but I think trail runners are very relatable in terms of marketing and everything. Like they're real people. You reach out on Instagram and, you know, I'd say 80% of the time you'll get a response from one of the biggest names in the sport. So they're very, um, accessible and I find them highly inspirational and yeah, I, I think that it's about time that we say enough is enough. Like maybe we do need a uh, 100 miler or 100K in the Olympics uh, to acknowledge that these are some of the very best athletes in the whole world. Like a Jim Walmsley not having a gold medal or any kind of Olympic uh, debut is unreal in my head because he is. Same with Killian and, you know, Krar and, and all the big names in ultra running throughout the years. Like, it's really sad that our society has just basically ignored them. And, I mean, I you could make the same argument for your sport, you know, obstacle course racing, having some kind of Olympic debut. If we're yeah. going to have snowboarding half-pipe, come on.
0: Yeah. Right? So, I think – so, the other problem we get into here, which – is the Olympics, you know, we think of them as this grand ideal, but at the same time they're a business, right? So they want something that is, doesn't take up a lot of space. They can draw a crowd, they can sell tickets, they can essentially use it as, they can air it on TV real quick, it's good marketing. You know, and trail running does not do that. It requires setting up cameras in the woods. Uh, you know, It's harder to get aerial shots probably. Um, depending on where the Olympics are, you're going to have to drive pretty far out of the city probably because they typically held in major metropolitan areas. And if, you know, if we're saying that it, they don't have a big, there's not a big trail running community following it, you know, they may be hesitant
1: to quote unquote invest into the, into, exactly. that sport, into the Olympics. Uh, so. that's, that's exactly the counter and that's highly likely as to why there is no event. Um, and there's been an argument to, Try to figure out a way to put it within winter. Um, I know Eric Trans of uh, Ultra Runner podcast. Just he lives and breathes ultra running, and, and he's made a comment or two um, to me about how it would make sense because you're in a mountainous region already. Yeah, sure. So if you could figure out some kind of winter connection there, but yeah, it's there's no easy solution, or else we would turn on the Olympics every few years and see ultra running. The only differences I found with
0: so kind of jumping back to the prize money in ultra sports was one, um, uh, basically to put on an OCR and essentially requires it's a ultra OCR is a five mile loop typically and people just run it in a circle, so theoretically it shouldn't cost that much more to operate a twenty four hour race than it does to operate a single day race. You know, minus I'm sure the insurance goes up and I'm sure. You know, obviously, you need medical coverage for all 24 hours and stuff like that. And you get cost would be the
1: same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: I think a lot of the costs should even out, which is why I think we, at one point, you know, at points we've had prize money in Ultra OCR. And then now we had some pretty big sponsors the last couple of years for World's Toughest Mutter that I'm sure footed a lot of the bill for, for that. And then I think the other thing is had- really just established norms, right? Like Ultra OCR, you know, started with prize money. So I think people are expecting prize money. So that's kind of what they're used to versus, I mean, ultra running started a little more, um, you know, people just getting out there and testing their limits. So
1: I think they're not having
0: prize money per se.
1: I mean, ultra running's new, newer, I mean, and obviously obstacle course racing is also, but um, yeah, we have this model, this current model and until someone's willing to try something different and new and just totally out there. I mean, I, I think the repetitive format could, you could have a course that's a five mile loop and do a, you know, a hundred miles on it. Um, so it's it's just a matter of, of breaking the mold and, and I mean, maybe they, that's where prize money comes from. Eventually- 24 hour races on a track, right? I, they do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They do. I think Wisconsin, um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin has like six days in the dome or something like that, which is literally an indoor track and people will do it for six days straight and air Viper racing is going to have a 10 day race, I believe on a, a very like reasonable track. So someone's going to break the mold but I mean, currently things are great. I mean it, within ultra running, it's a sport that's growing to the point where it's almost exceeding um, what it has been set up to do. so like a lot of races are lotteries now, and it takes yeah. five years to get to western states as an average runner um, but yeah it's it's um it's becoming. I think more popular because people are realizing after they finish Boston or their local marathon, they're looking for the next thing. And I've, I've been there, I've experienced it. And you need that next motivational race to sign up for and just doing, uh, another marathon quicker. It's appealing to a lot of people. Don't get me wrong, setting new PRs and stuff, but a lot of people are looking for that next thing and it's a 50 K and then you hit the trails and you realize like, oh, this is not just about distance. This is about changing everything you know about running. You're like, you're climbing up the steepest mountains. You're having to learn to run technical trail. You're learning to fuel properly and hydrate differently. And yeah, it just, and then after the 50K, obviously, um, some people get hooked on trying to go for that next distance, which, I mean, it can be unhealthy but if you're um, smart about it, I, I use it as a huge motivational uh, driver for me. Like when I'm signed up for something like the triple crown, I have a little chalkboard next to my coffee maker. So every morning when I turn the coffee maker on, I see my chalkboard with my goals that are written down and it's not about obsessing on future goals. It's about opening the refrigerator and not making those choices I've made in the past, you know, like, like making healthy choices because I know I have that race coming up. Um, so it helps me a ton in life and I'm kind of leveraging that. So it's on like a subconscious level, making healthy nutritional choices and, you know, it, it's, it's truly been life changing for me enough so that I felt like writing a book could motivate your average runner, middle of the pack at best. Um, And when you take a step back away from whether elites are getting compensated for winning races and all that stuff, you see a bell-shaped curve and most runners, I mean, just statistics say most runners are average. Um, And I think there's not enough, you've read all running books out there. There's only a small handful on on running from the middle of the pack to back of the pack, and trust me, I've been very very back of the pack <laughs> a lot of times, and I truly am like middle of the pack at best during these these crazy races, so um, yeah it's it's life changing having that meaningful goal, and what's meaningful is all relative to each of us, so just make sure you truly. Pick something that's motivational to you that gets you out of bed early in the morning with a smile that you have this to work towards. And you know that's the best part of this is you know if you're lying to yourself. Like it doesn't matter what other people have on their schedule. Um, what matters is when you wake up and you are excited to get out for that easy six miler or whatever you have on your schedule. Um, it's life-changing so I think that's some great advice because in the alpha course racing world we have
0: this like you need to do everything all events regardless of the distance because some of our top athletes are actually I mean they're, they're just phenomenal um, they race everything from 3k short course to 24 hour length and everything in between and do well so I think sometimes you look at the top of the sport and you're like oh well if that's what they're doing I should be doing the same thing and you know some people may not enjoy a three k OCR, and some people don't enjoy a twelve hour or twenty four hour one so definitely some good That's, advice there. I mean
1: ultimately unless unless you are the elite guy who's winning these races and making a living off it, which is not basically anyone listening right now um, don't don't feel bad about signing up for that three k I mean life's too short. do what makes you happy do what is gonna give you some longevity. So yeah, you could go really try to crush your twelve hour and break yourself and be out for six months or even a year. maybe you can't even, you know, do that climb that you used to be able to do all the time. So like be smart about it. Look at the long term and and don't compare, you know, if if you're doing the three K course, like it doesn't make you better or worse compared to a twelve hour race. It's do what motivates you to be doing this for the long run and making healthy choices and you know, getting those workouts in and just being happy. I mean, life's too short. Just enjoy, enjoy the conversation you're in. Enjoy the workout that you're in right now.
0: Good stuff there. So bef- we want to start wrapping things up here. Before we let you go, though, your book, Tra- uh, Training for Ultra, tell us a little bit about it, where people can find it.
1: Yeah. Hopefully I didn't give away too much stuff about it. Um, it's available physical copies just on my website. I've taken it. Like I've made a concerted effort not to have it on Amazon. Um, so physical copy trainingforultra.com, And then I do have a digital copy that's on Kindle, which is uh Amazon. And then I will have an audio book out in a few weeks also for those who like audible. And I think it'll be available on iTunes. Um, And what's the general, give us quick, you know, general synopsis of the book. I mean, we talked a little bit about my journey, but it's, it dives deeper. So it starts way at the beginning, um, maybe a chapter or two about before, um, my dad's health scare. And then it goes, literally, it's my first three years of running and it dives into a lot of, you know, I, I had fun being creative, like, you know, really um trying to paint the picture of what's taking place during these races so you'll hear like I just said never summer 100k like it's a hard hard race well there's a whole chapter on that race it's more than just a race recap and there's a lot of things that were going on behind the scenes that I tried to share and there's a lot of chapters on Moab 240 (laughs) it was was life-changing on a lot of levels and uh yeah. I mean, it's hopefully it'll inspire you. So don't read the last chapter first. I tried to end with a bang and, uh, really finish the book to motivate you to, to get out there, you know, find that motivational goal and just go for it. So, and where can, you people, it. Uh, where can people find your podcast? Podcast is on, on all the outlets, uh, same as yours, and it's just called training for ultra. And I try to find inspirational stories. I mean, I'm talking to a lot of elites, and I mix in just a variety of backgrounds. But it's whoever's motivating me. So sometimes I'll reach out to someone who DNF'd a race. That is a really great runner, um, and I try to mix it up and hear from a lot of people. I love finding those elite guys that aren't elites yet. Um, that don't you know haven't done a podcast interview before and I also try to throw in a lot of tips so we always talk about gear and nutrition and all that stuff so I want you to learn stuff while having some good entertainment but yeah it's it's fun it's a lot of work and as you know it's very hot you know podcasts is probably the highest paid job out there <laughs> <laughs> yeah right lucky to break even <laughs> absolutely uh,
0: <laughs> uh well give give us a couple of episodes that you personally recommend so if someone's just getting into your podcast and you're like hey these, these are a couple of good episodes definitely to start off with i
1: mean and i know this is kind of cliche but i do take away something from each and every one um there are I, i'll just highlight two or three um most popular episodes would be um how to run 100 miles with Carl Meltzer, the speed goat. I mean, he has a Hoka 1-1 one, one shoe that line that, you know, very popular shoe. He's uh, he's run tons of hundreds. He's probably one of the best 100-mile racer. He's done the AT. He's just – he's a great, great um, ambassador for the sport, and his episode did really well. Um, and he gave a lot of really good advice. I think the uh, episode with Sally McRae, she's a Nike trail elite runner, hit home. Her story is just unbelievable. And the way it came together was unreal. So uh, hopefully you won't cry when you hear it, but if you want to be motivated by a truly inspirational person, Sally McRae episode's awesome. And I'll finish with um, Brian Frank. The uh, founder, owner of Hammer Nutrition, we walked through for one of the episodes. It was called something like "How to Fuel and Hydrate" or something to that effect. Literally, we went through a hypothetical 100K from the week before the race to the week after the race and everything in between, from the vantage point of fueling and hydrating. Which, honestly, I learned stuff that I utilized in my own races and. It's been, um, you know, highly downloaded and I think it's all these episodes, there's just, people are taking away stuff that is helping them during their races. So I, I think that hammer nutrition episode would help every single listener, um, in some regards. So awesome. Yeah. I'm
0: definitely gonna have to go back and check those out. I've listened to a couple episodes of yours, but not, not all of them. So I will put those towards the top of my download list. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll be listening
0: to yours too. (laughs) And so obviously big in the ultra running world, let's couple of gear recommendations, uh, your personal opinion on like shoes, socks, uh, anything else that's kind of you feel necessary for ultra running?
1: Yeah, I mean, shoes, there's like, um, there's only a few like real um, notorious trail runner shoes. I mean, ultra um, that is now... sort of like a North Face uh, VF Corp company, but yeah, Ultra has a, uh, a zero drop, so you can't just try them out, like immediately kind of work into them slowly so you don't mess up your knees, but it's more of a natural way of running, and they have a giant toe box. Uh, I, I use those, I mix them up with Hoka's, which are known for being like kind of a more cushioned shoe. Sometimes they're yeah, you know, the real early models look kind of goofy. Um, and then Solomons are for guys with like real slim feet uh, for the most part. But um, I would say biggest advice on shoe front, and I, I'm not sponsored by any shoe companies, uh, is size up half a size. So if you're a nine, go with a nine and a half and just trust me on that. <laughs> uh, and socks, I, I am sponsored by uh, Exoskin they make like a real high-tech, breathable, uh, it's like a thinner sock. But I was able to do Moab 240 without any blisters, which is kind of unreal. And my biggest advice, use some kind of foot lube. So I use something called squirrel's nut butter, which yeah. is you just rub, rub it all over your feet, get it all over your toes, and I use toe socks a lot of times. I, I take a lot of heat on that. But um, <laughs> slide those puppies in. Like, it feels uncomfortable for like the first two minutes. But yeah, if you've done that properly and your feet aren't, I, you can't do like a river crossing at mile five of a hundred mile or not destroy your feet. Like, it's just, it's pretty hard. Um, but yeah, you can give yourself the best chance. And that's that's how I'd recommend it.
0: Awesome. And so we're gonna wrap things up. Any final shout outs you wanna give to friends, family, sponsors, etc.
1: I mean, I'm I'm just uh you know, thankful you had me on and and of course I gotta I gotta give a shout out to Supperfest beer. You know, having a beer sponsor is pretty cool. That's pretty good because I I don't drink, so they don't they don't really get beer recommendations for me. So that's a good one for. You know, yeah, maybe I'll just mention them just because we've talked about Candice Burt's races and I mean Ultimate Direction, but Sufferfest beer is not it's it was developed by an athlete for us athletes, and it is it's actually gluten removed. So they say like, hey Rob, don't talk about that back because it just tastes good. So. Um, and they're going to have national distribution They're in California and Colorado. And, uh, they have, they have, uh, Amelia Boone as one of their athletes. Oh, nice. So, um, they do like your community a lot and, uh, they're not just for trail runners. They're basically for any of us. Like after a hard race, let's celebrate. You earned your beer. So.
0: Nice. I love yeah. it. Cool. Well, if any listeners are listening, uh, Head over to TeamStrengthSpeed.com. By the time this comes out, we should be shipping copies of Mud Run Guide's Ultimate OCR Bucket List. So it's got 100-plus races in there of kind of like abbreviated race reviews and information on them. Allows you to really get a wide look at the sport from, you know, anything from short course to 24-hour races and kind of everything between OCR+. plus. So if you're looking for like an OCR slash triathlon or OCR mixed with CrossFit, you know, there's kind of coverage of that in the book too. So it also includes races that have gone defunct. So on top of that, on top of just being like a good resource for things you might want to put on your bucket list, it's also a good kind of like a look back at the sport, kind of showing some of the history of it. So pretty cool stuff there. If you're an ultra runner that doesn't normally listen to this podcast and interested in getting into ultra distance absolute course racing, I also have my book Mud Run Guides Ultra OCR Bible on my website, it's literally the only book on endurance obstacle course racing. That's it. It's just mine. So pick that up. I printed a limited number of copies, so they will eventually sell out. The, actually, they've been on sale for about a year, and I've sold, let uh, say, about 70% of them. So probably sell out this year, and if not, maybe early next year. And then on top of that, we also have Blegmich shipping from the USA, so they're the three millimeter neoprene mittens with like a fleece lining. Great for extreme cold weather running or endurance obstacle course racing. They were designed by ultra OCR champion Deanna Bleg, who's won world's toughest mudder once as an individual and came in, I think second as a team. So great mitts there. Um, we all, those also are selling out fast. So If you need a pair and you're wanting to wait just before World's Toughest to order them, I would order them now to make sure I have your size in stock. That's about it. Rob, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, it was great talking to you.
1: Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.
0: Catch you later.